Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. It's often remarked that the peaceful transfer of power from one presidential administration to the next is one of the greatest achievements of America's constitutional system. But if anything, we underestimate what a challenge this process presents. Election day is in early November. Inauguration day is in late January. What occurs in the two and a half months in between, the transition, is a truly complicated and, frankly, amazing process. And as the federal government, and especially presidential administrations, become ever more powerful and more complicated, the transition process becomes ever more difficult and more important. To discuss this, it's my pleasure to welcome Tevi Troy, a presidential historian who served in high-level positions in the George W. Bush administration, and most importantly for present purposes, he helped lead Governor Mitt Romney's process for building up a transition during the 2012 election. Tevi, welcome. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate this. If anything, Tevi, I should say welcome back. You are our guest in late March for discussion of presidential crisis management in the early weeks of COVID-19. Yeah, I may want to take back some of what I said then and <laughs> revisit because this crisis has gone on way longer than anybody anticipated. Well, it's true. And I suppose that's one of the things that will further complicate this particular transition, the, the Trump-Biden transition. Now, in addition, to you've written on so many different aspects of the modern presidency. But one thing you've written about along the way has been the history of transitions. You did it in a 2016 article for National Affairs titled Measuring the Drapes, more recently in an article for the Washington Post titled Five Myths of Presidential Transitions. So let's explore modern transitions, but also their history. And and let's start at the very beginning. What do the very first transitions from Washington to Adams and from Adams to Jefferson look like? Well, they were very different transitions. First of all, you didn't have such a large and complicated government. When a transition happens now, President-elect Biden's got to put forward 4,000 people for positions. They're not going to be all ready on day one. But the key positions, the top cabinet positions, the chief of staff, the top positions of the White House, those do have to be there. And there are 600 Senate confirmed positions. So the federal government was nothing like then. So the funny thing about the first transition was it was from Washington to Adams, who had been Washington's vice president, so a relatively friendly transition, as we call it. And Adams' complaints were about the state of the furniture in the, in the presidential mansion at the time. So just very different nature of things. And then the second transition, which I argue is the most important election slash transition in history, was the move from Adams to Jefferson. And Adams had run against Jefferson, or I should be perhaps I should say Jefferson had run against Adams. So that was, a, I guess, a hostile takeover, if you will, or, or the, it was the first peaceful transition in history from one party to another from a loser in election to a winner in election. And that was kind of a dicey thing. It wasn't clear that winners would leave gracefully or or leave at all. And Adams, to his great credit, left. And there was no civil war. There were no problems along those lines. I would not, however, say he left gracefully because he didn't stay and watch Jefferson be sworn in. Now that is part of the tradition, the outgoing president, whether he's a loser or retiring on his own, stands on the stand next to the incoming president. And there's this show of unity, which is a great thing. And a real open question of whether it's going to happen this year. Obviously, I hope it does for uh, traditional reasons, but I also understand that there are reasons why it may not happen. So, But again, those transitions, the early transitions, were just very different in nature than what we have today. Now, perhaps the most famous aspect of Adams leaving office and transitioning the office over to Jefferson is the things that Adams tried to accomplish in his last weeks, even days or hours in office. Famously, his appointment of the so-called midnight judges stocking the federal bench with federalist judges. And of course, any presidency in its last days, weeks, 
is focused on what it can accomplish unilaterally. And maybe that marked, especially the early transitions, as much as our own. But there is also this question about how an administration, whether it's now term limited out by two terms, or if the administration, the president just lost his bid for re-election, what it can do to help prepare the incoming administration. Was there anything like that in the 19th century where one administration would try to prepare the next? Or is that really a, a modern development? It's much more of a modern development. Again, again, the thing wasn't as complex or large or cumbersome. You didn't need to have hundreds of positions. You didn't need to understand a multi-trillion dollar budget. It just, it just wasn't the same. So transitions back in the 19th century were very different. And it really is in 1960 with Kennedy that you had somebody who put some real thought into transition. And Kennedy actually had Richard Neustadt, the Columbia political scientist, prepare a series of memos for him on presidential power and what the president can do and how you should be thinking about the staffing of an administration. And for somebody like me who follows administrative law, there was both Neustadt and also James Landis, the former New Dealer, who helped advise JFK on how to staff up an administration, how to organize it, and so on. So why don't we fast forward to the most recent examples, the one that you were in, before maybe walking back and explaining how we got here. So we know how transitions... Can I rewind for one sec, though? Yeah, sure. Because you said something about any administration tries to do everything it can in the last few days that it still has the power to do. And, and I would actually want to, want to point out George W. Bush, person for whom I worked, who actually took a different approach on this. And he said, as of July, they weren't going to be pursuing new regulations. Some people inside the administration actually grumbled about this called a unilateral disarmament. But Bush did not like the midnight regulations that were imposed on him, some of which were booby traps by the Clinton administration. And he thought that he didn't want to pursue the same kind of approach. So I would say not every president takes that, let's get it all done to the last second approach. That's fascinating. Maybe we'll, let's dive a little deeper into that then. At what point did he make that clear that, that his outgoing administration was going to be different? I mean, there's usually some sort of settled expectations about what the end of an administration looks like. Did he signal this very early, if you remember, or, or was this a, a late surprise in 2008? This was something in 2008, uh, mostly in the summer. So we pretty much knew that it was going to be Obama versus McCain, but they had not yet accepted the nominations. And he made it pretty clear that there was actually a famous memo, the Bolton memo, named after Josh Bolton, who was the chief of staff, but had also been head of OMB, so really understood the regulatory process. And he was also the deputy chief of staff for policy in the first term. And this Bolton memo laid out kind of the process for laying down your arms, if you will, where he said that we're not going to be pursuing regulations till the last minute, and you should stop initiating any new regulations after a date certain. And again, there were some cabinet secretaries who I spoke to I was deputy secretary of HHS at the time, who said, why are we doing this? There are things that we think we can still accomplish in, in this period. And so there was some frustration. But Bush had a very strong sense that what had happened to him when the Clinton administration left was not right. And one, one of the specific things was Clinton put forward all these regulations that were completely unrealistic and were basically there set as political traps for Bush. One of them was the famous arsenic in the water where Clinton imposed an impossibly high standard that was not scientifically rational on arsenic levels in the water, knowing that the Bush administration would have to undo it just because it was not a workable standard. But that led to a whole cavalcade of articles in the press saying, oh, Bush wants to poison your water, Bush wants arsenic in your water. And it was a very difficult story for Bush to overcome, and it kind of stuck with him for a long time. Bush just had a very strong sense of fairness, and he thought that wasn't cricket. That's fascinating. I've totally forgotten about that. You had a firsthand seat then for that transition from HHS. And then in 2012, you were brought in by Governor Romney's 
transition in the, I suppose, the summer of 2012 to help prepare for his possible election and transition. So why don't we talk about that a little bit before going back to the history. What was the transition like when you were there in office in 2012? Well, it was very serious. There was a presidential pre-election transition act that passed in 2010. And this was in large part based on what happened in 2000 when there was obviously an election controversy between Bush and Gore, and they waited 36 days before either side could officially start their transitions. And that put the Bush administration kind of behind at the very beginning. And so the idea was that both candidates would get money for a transition starting when they received the nomination. This is very important. And it's an important distinction because usually you would only do a transition once you knew you would secure the election. And doing anything beforehand was called measuring the drapes and was seen disdainfully. And the recognition was that you can't really expect a president to get fully ready for everything that has to be done in only two and a half months. There just wasn't enough time. And it's weird because in some ways it's too much time and not enough time. Because if you look at the transition from Franklin Roosevelt, from Hoover to Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, that went until March. They actually changed the law so that it would later become until January. But that went until March. And we were in the midst of a Great Depression. And Hoover was kind of paralyzed. He wanted Roosevelt to help him and to join together and to make joint declarations. And Roosevelt wanted nothing to do with it. He kind of let Hoover dangle. And it was a very long and awkward period, which led to the truncated position. So the truncated transition has its advantages in that the new president starts sooner, but it also has its disadvantages when the president has less time to get ready. So this 2010 act said, let's give both candidates money and office space for transition. We recognize that one of them is going to lose, and that money will be money down the drain. But it's a drop in the bucket compared to the problems that will be caused by a president who's unready when things begin. You mentioned that some of the most recent reforms were informed by the experience in 2000. If I remember correctly, that the 9-11 Commission, one of the things that it pointed to in, in looking at the, the sources of, of America's lack of readiness for the, the 9-11 attacks was the truncated transition in 2000 to 2001. Whether that's accurate or not, I don't, I don't know. But the 9-11 Commission certainly saw it as such. Why don't we talk a little bit about what the transition really does? Let's unpack this a little bit before looking back in time again. There's at least a couple of things I can think of, right? One is developing policy, and another is preparing personnel. Before we start, am I missing anything else? Those are the two big ones. There are conversations with the agencies and intelligence briefings. And so there are some things that you get from the outgoing administration, but the real key to a transition, and the point I make in my recent Washington Post piece, that the real key to a transition is the internal work that the incoming administration does, meaning how they set up their staff, who they pick, are those people ready to go? If there are Senate confirmations that have to happen, do those Senate confirmations get kind of pre-greased? Are they moving at a fast pace? Are there people who are pre-vetted so that you don't have any major blow-ups with embarrassing things in their backgrounds? And then the policies, what are the things you're going to start doing on day one? Obviously, every Secretary has a policy team, the White House policy teams, and they're constantly developing policies throughout. But the policy checklist that a cabinet secretary gets on day one can be hugely important. For example, I worked for Secretary Elaine Chao, and I worked on the labor transition in 2000. And Secretary Chao, I don't want to say was given because it's not, I mean, she was part of the development process, but the transition developed along with Secretary Chao, a checklist of things that we wanted to get done. 
And she kept that checklist throughout her time as secretary. And she served all eight years in the Bush administration. And she said, I'm going to get those things done. And almost completely, she got all those things done. Where do the things on the checklist come from? Well, the people who staff a transition are experts. Some of them come from think tanks and write about, in this case, labor policy. Some of them have served in previous administrations, so they know what the department has done in the past and the department's capabilities are. Some of them come from the Hill and have engaged in oversight or in, in legislation about the department in question. So you have people who have a lot of knowledge of the agency, even if they haven't been there the previous four or eight years, and they have a kind of wish list of what they think a new administration should accomplish based in large part on what the campaign said. But for the most part, the presidential campaign doesn't talk about the specifics of labor regulation. It just doesn't come up. So you need to have an informed group of people who start putting the, the meat on the bones, if you will. Amara Cuomo famously said that a campaign, campaigns in poetry and a government governs in prose. The transition is when you start to take that poetry and start to convert it into prose. And the prose specifically being what are the actual details of the policies that a president's going to try to accomplish. Now, as a formal matter, I suppose the transition begins the spring before the election. But these ideas that are coming into it, they often, I think, come much earlier, don't they? Where I'm going with this is, in some ways, the transition is sort of the continuation of, the, of a previous administration. Right? It's oftentimes the, the people who knew, it, who knew these policies best from their work in the earlier administration, they leave office, but they don't leave the network, so to speak. They stay in touch with one another and with other sort of folks who are educated on these policies. They watch what a current administration is doing. And along the way, they formulate, you could say, checklists, mental or written down, official or unofficial, sort of watching what the administration is doing, especially doing through the administrative agencies, and looks for the first opportunity to unwind those things. Yeah, basically, what you're talking about is a shadow government. Exactly. And I say that we, we do have that. We have those shadow governments. I mean, we don't have them like you have in the British Parliament which are literally specific people in the minority who are the analogs of the people of the majority. We don't have that. But we have this network of people who are experts in specific issues who are thinking about these issues when they're on the outside, and they try and get ready with what they want to accomplish, and if they get the chance to be on the inside. Or even if they themselves don't get on the inside, they will advise the new people. So for example, in 2000, I had worked on the Hill, and I'd worked in policy, but I had not been really immersed in labor policy before I went to the Department of Labor. And so I got a real quick education from people who were immersed in it, people who had worked on the Hill in previous administrations and really helped me get ready for that period when I was doing the transition at labor and then actually working in labor for the first year or two of the administration. So as the official transition starts to come together, then they have this, this growing checklist of things to undo from the last administration and things to affirmatively accomplish on their own going forward. So they begin to plan. I suppose the turning point is the election itself, right? You do a lot of preparation. And then if your candidate wins, suddenly you pivoting towards the, the very real fact of taking power in about two and a half months. But you worked for a, a transition that, needless to say, didn't reach that turning point. Or it turned in the other I like direction. I call it the nascent Romney transition. And how would you describe the state of the Romney transition on election day. I mean, just in terms of, you don't need to divulge secrets, but just in terms of what's out there in, in the public record and what's you know, appropriate for you to say, what was the state of a transition 
Yeah, there, there's no real election. secrets other than perhaps some of the names who are on lists. And even that, I don't know how secret it is all these years later. But what we wanted to be was ready to go. And we knew that if Romney had won that election, and you know, he lost, but it wasn't a complete blowout. If he had won, we knew that our office of the transition was going to switch from the transition office to the office of the president-elect. And we actually had a suite of offices that had extra Secret Service protection and that were key carded that not everybody could get to. And we, we did a tour of where the president-elect would sit should he be successful in the election effort, which obviously he wasn't. And we had a group of kind of MBA business types who were at the top of the transition, including Governor Mike Levitt, who had been the Secretary of HHS for whom I'd worked, Chris Liddell, a former Microsoft executive who's now in the Trump administration, Jim Quigley, who was a former senior person at, at Deloitte. And these people kind of understood how businesses worked, how organizations worked. And they gave us a set of metrics. By day X, you had to have your landing teams ready. And by day Y, you needed to have the short memos ready for cabinet secretaries. One insight we had was that previous transitions often got a memo from the career staff at the departments. And this memo was more like a briefing book and it would be 80, 100, 200 pages long. There was zero chance that an incoming cabinet secretary would sit and read that actual briefing book. And we decided that's fine to have those briefing books, but we wanted to have short one to two page memos, a big overview of the department and what we wanted to accomplish in our time there. And so we were pretty much ready to go with the basic recommendations of who we were going to put forward in front of Governor Romney. It wasn't Adam White should be head of OIRA. It would be, here are five people who should be head of OIRA, Adam White among them. It was that kind of thing. So you'd have, you'd have a list of, of a number of people to consider for each position. And the we wanted to have them for, I think it's the top 100 positions in government, the 15 or so cabinet secretaries plus the top commission and, and assistant secretary and deputy secretary heads of, of agencies. And then we wanted to have those memos ready to go for what we wanted to accomplish should we get there. And we have to have those ready. And so we had really done a lot of the work that a previous transmission would have done in the two months from November to January. Obviously, there would have been a whole bunch more things to do. And I know we were talking about courtesy calls to foreign leaders and congressional calls and starting the confirmation process. or there are a whole bunch of other things that had to happen post-victory. But I think that Romney transition put a lot of thought into how to do it. And they would have been really ready to go from a transition standpoint more than other previous administrations had been up to that point. And this, this Biden transition is going to be an interesting experiment because so Romney was ready to go, but wasn't necessary because he lost the election. 2016, the Trump transition did not expect to win. And so they prepared some of these books, but there was that famous incident where it was led by Chris Christie and Jared Kushner had that difficulty with Chris Christie because of his father being imprisoned. And so all of the Christie books were thrown in the garbage after Trump wins unexpectedly. And so they started from scratch. And so now 2020, the Biden transition will be probably the first transition to have started in the summer with some government money and thought about it and had a lot of previous alumni from previous administrations and be more ready to go than any administration, I would say, in, in history, if they do their jobs right. And the Biden transition and if is a big deal. That's on it. One of the leading figures in the Biden transition is Biden's longtime aide and, and his immediate successor as senator from Delaware, Ted Kaufman, who we'll get back to in a second because he plays an important role in the modernization of transition. But along the way of your, your last answer, you talked about office space. And that points us to an important feature of all of this and one that took on sort of added public notice in, in this particular transition because of the 
controversy surrounding the election results. It's the role of the GSA, the General Services Administration, the federal government's in-house landlord, so to speak, that's responsible for federal real estate and federal technical resources and so on. The GSA plays a central role in the transition, right? Because it unlocks the funds and and the office space and other resources that are available on behalf of the federal government for the incoming transition, right? True, but I'm not sure they always do this wisely because in 2016, they put both the Trump and Clinton transitions in the same building, which was not smart on multiple levels, including there were a lot of awkward elevator rides. Look, people here are professionals. They know who the opponents are. They know the people on the other side. Many times you had someone come visit the building. That was something that people knew. And in fact, I had one meeting with a senior transition official who wanted my insights into what had happened in the Romney transition. And we specifically met not at transition headquarters so that I, I wouldn't be seen and they wouldn't be seen having the meeting. So putting the two transitions in the same building, I just think is, is a not smart move. And hopefully it wasn't relevant this year because Trump didn't have a transition because he was, he, he was the sitting incumbent president. But in 2024, if it's an open election, the next time we have an open election and you have two candidates who are not serving as president, both running, I would hope that the GSA would have the wisdom to put them in two different buildings. Let me quibble with that a little bit. I mean, isn't it a good thing that they're in the same building? It's a constant reminder. No. Um, it's, well, <laughs> let me just not. try this, Tevi. It's, <laughs> it's a constant reminder to them, first of all, that they aren't the president yet. It's a constant reminder that they are one of two possible transitions that is stewarding federal resources, even though they're a, it's the campaign, it's the transition, it's not part of government. It is in a weird way sort of quasi-government, right? Because it's, the, it's making more formal this whole aspect of, of shadow government that you and I talked about. Yeah, it makes things more complicated for them and it might have the unintended, I mean, does have the unintended consequences of pushing some of this semi-official business out into you know, other buildings, other neighborhoods and so on. But I don't know, I kind of like the idea that for those four months or whatever, five months leading up to the election, you have some of the leading figures on the Democratic side and some of the leading figures on the Republican side seeing each other in the lobby and having to stand awkwardly next to each other on the, on the elevator. The opportunity for mischief is great, is what I will say about that. But it's also, in some ways, it's unfair to the losing team. They kind of slink out with their heads held low while the other side gloats. And I wouldn't say I was rooting for Hillary Clinton in, in 2016, but it kind of wasn't fair to the Hillary Clinton folks in 2016 to have that added insult, I guess, of kind of walking out of the building while the Trump folks were triumphantly walking in. Now, in your recent Washington Post article on the five myths about presidential transitions, myth number one is that the transition requires an official GSA sign-off to begin. And again, this is a reflection of the debate surrounding the current head of the GSA, who under the applicable federal statute can release funds or is supposed to release funds to the, the winning campaign once she or he ascertains who the apparent winner of the election is. But as you say in the Washington Post, as important as that statute is, that's not the beginning of the transition and it's not the end all be all of the transition. But how important is that, GSA? Nor, nor the beginning of funding. Yeah. Right? The, the transition gets some funding starting in the summer, as we said, once you get the nomination. So look, I, I thought the GSA thing was a little overstated. I think that presidential candidates start transitions way before even the, the summer when the Presidential Transition Act allows them to get government funding. Jimmy Carter started his in, uh, I, I believe, April, before anybody even thought that Carter was going to be the nominee, let alone president. 
George W. Bush asked his friend Clay Johnson to be thinking about it in, I believe, in 1999, long before he was likely to be president. And I think that, again, the key things that a transition does are the internal things, the thinking that they put into the transition effort. And I think those things don't need GSA. Now, obviously, there are some things towards the end of the process where you do need GSA. You have those meetings with the career officials. You have the meetings with the outgoing folks sometimes, which are sometimes helpful and sometimes not. You have the intelligence briefings, but you don't need those in November necessarily. You need to be doing the hard work internally to make sure that you have your ducks in a row. And there have been, and we haven't talked about the history yet, I know you want to, but there have been plenty of times when transitions did not have their ducks in a row and they had people who were insufficiently vetted and they had embarrassing revelations and they had all kinds of times when they were scrambling about things that they shouldn't have been scrambling about if they had put some proper thought into it before. Well, let's talk about that then. What, what are some of these examples? Well, my favorite is the Clinton transition in 1992, which they did in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is a lovely idea to have it from you know, the heart of America and all that stuff. But they did not think about the small size of the Little Rock airport. And if they wanted to have private conversations with someone, those people had to fly into this small Little Rock airport, which the reporters could easily stake out and say, oh, this guy is going to meet with the transition team. Let's figure out what job he's up for. It just gave the reporters an advantage that they didn't need. And I think the Clinton team was constantly scrambling on that front. Also, they had a couple of people who were insufficiently vetted, specifically for the nanny tax issue. And they lost two Justice Department nominees, one of whom was Kimba Wood, about this problem of not paying the nanny tax. And then the third person they eventually got was Janet Reno, didn't have kids, so didn't have a nanny tax problem. And she ended up serving all eight years. And Clinton didn't really like her very much and didn't know her beforehand. And it just wasn't a good person to have as attorney general if you don't have that that connection. I, mean, I think he was stuck with a third tier attorney general only because they didn't do the vetting in advance. And also, I think that they had not smartly committed themselves to it must be a female attorney general instead of the best qualified attorney general. So when their first two went down, they had to find the third ranking or the third best possible woman for the job. And again, this was a time in the early 90s when you had a lot fewer female lawyers. Now there's a larger pool from which to pick. The pool was smaller than, again, so this would have to be a senior female lawyer who would have had to have gone to law school, let's say, in the 1960s, maybe. And again, there weren't as many people going. So I think they set themselves up for a problem with that selection. And that's what happened. I think the other the other failed would-be nominee was Zoe Baird, right? That is correct. Janet Reno might not have been Bill Clinton's favorite, but she was a favorite of those who watched Saturday Night Live and enjoyed eight years of the, of the Janet Reno dance party sketch, but I digress. You know, another complicated transition to go back much further in time is Andrew Jackson's, right? Jackson, after losing the controversial election of, what was it, 1826 against John Quincy Adams? 1824. 1824 against John Quincy Adams, comes back in in 1828 to win. And if I remember correctly, Jackson's supporters, many of whom were eager to to staff up, so to speak, the new administration, flooded into the White House. And and to get the mob out of there, I think they had to lure them out, if I remember correctly, with with promises of of free beer or something. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, free booze. So Jackson loses the 1824 election, but he wins the popular vote. He loses the electoral vote, which, you know, as we know, and he doesn't even lose it. He has a plurality of it, not a majority of it. The thing goes to the House of Representatives. Henry Clay, who also was a candidate, throws his support behind John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams becomes president, makes Clay the secretary of state. 
not necessarily as a result of a promise, but it was called the corrupt bargain nonetheless. And Jackson just lords this over them for four years, runs and wins in 1828 and then in 1832, which makes him the first ever and one of only three people to win the popular vote three consecutive elections. Grover Cleveland also did it because he lost in the middle. And when he lost, he had won the popular vote, but lost the electoral vote. Then he comes back and runs against Harrison again and wins. And then Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually won the popular vote four times, the only person ever to do that. That's fascinating. So Jackson wins and he has this flood of supporters, many of whom have been chomping at the bit for four years for the Jackson administration. In those days, winning the presidency meant the spoils of victory, claiming the spoils of victory, throwing out vast amounts of the even then small but significant federal administration and restocking it with, with your own people. Obviously, for more than a century, we've had the Pendleton Act and other reforms for civil service that mitigate that quite a lot. But as you said, a huge part of transitions are finding the people for those top levels of policy control. So we've eliminated the, I suppose, to the winners go the spoils aspect of this. But still, you get into the 20th century, and there's more and more call for formalization of a transition process, reform of this. One of the first steps, as you pointed out, was just changing the period of the, of the lame duck presidency. Originally, it was, what, March 4th or 5th? March 5th, I think. And that was by originally an act of Congress, and not even the Congress under our Constitution. It was set by originally by the Confederation Congress for the, the Washington administration. But that long transition period continues until 1933, when you get the 20th Amendment, the 20th Amendment codifying this January 20th date. But as you said, we get into the mid-20th century and there's calls for reform. Initially in 1963, we get some reforms and then much more rapid reforms in just the last few years. So do you have sort of an overview of, of how these things carried on through the, through the 20th century? And obviously, there was the messy Hoover and FDR transition. Right, we talked about a little bit. Eisenhower, when he took over, and remember, the Democrats had had power for 20 years when Eisenhower takes over after the 52 election. And Eisenhower was a military man and kind of had a military approach to things. He knew who he wanted to bring in. So the next transition again is Kennedy. And Kennedy, we talked about the Newstead thing. We didn't talk about how Kennedy paid for part of that transition out of his own pocket and out of some funds from the Democratic National Committee. So this was not at all a government-funded transition. Again, that starts in the reforms that you mentioned in 1963. So Kennedy is, is really the first one to have what we'd call a modern transition. Nixon, when he takes over in 68, is following that official transition act of 63. But also, Nixon has served as vice president for a year, so he kind of knew what he wanted. Carter, in 76, has a guy named Jack Watson, who's heading the transition, and by all accounts is very good, and should have been the chief of staff. But Ham Jordan, who was the kind of campaign strategist and guru, the Karl Rove of the, the Carter campaign, he hates Jack Watson because he thinks Jack Watson is kind of accumulating all the power, and he has a whole bunch of people reporting to him, and Ham Jordan only has a handful of people reporting to him. And so he blocks Jack Watson from becoming chief of staff. And actually, Carter has no chief of staff at the beginning, which is a real problem. And the Carter administration is, is kind of meandering at the early days. They don't even know how to call meetings. That's a problematic transition. Reagan, I think, was a little more buttoned down in 1980. And then in 1988, the transition from Reagan to Bush was surprisingly acrimonious because the Bush folks wanted to get rid of the Reagan people. And a lot of Reagan people who thought they were going to stay on in another Republican administration did not. And a Bush administration transition official famously tells the Washington Post, our people don't have agendas, they have mortgages, which is kind of like saying we're not going to take that ideological approach that the Reagan administration did. 
And then after Bush is the Clinton transition, which we already talked about, which was, was kind of messy. The Bush transition also messy because it was short. And then you have the Obama transition, which actually worked, I would say, pretty well. But they were in, in the midst of a financial crisis. So there were a lot of challenges going on there. And then the 2016 Trump transition, which we already talked about, where they threw out the work of the pre-election transition and they started a whole new effort. So we have that first reform in 63, then, as you said, sort of in the aftermath of Kennedy. Why do you suppose it is that we've had so many iterations of new legislation lately on this? We've had the pre-election Presidential Transition Act of 2010, then the Ted Kaufman and Michael Levitt Presidential Transitions Improvements Act of 2015, and then again, the Presidential Transition Act of 2019. This is a pretty rapid clip of, of legislation. I mean, almost every new administration. What are we learning so quickly in, in the last just 10 years that's causing so many rewrites of the Presidential Transitions Act? Well, government is complex and larger, and a lot of things can go wrong. And you can't just kind of sit there and wait for things to happen. Which we have had in certain administrations, uh, in the switch from Harrison to Grover Cleveland again, that I talked about earlier, Harrison kind of sat on stuff and, and Cleveland walked into office with a depression on his hand. So I think you can't just let stuff lie anymore. I think that's part of it. I think Levitt put a lot of thought into this about how transitions work and how they don't work. And so I think he was a key driver in the 2015 and 2019 activities. And I think that we've seen some problems that I've already mentioned, the truncated 2000 transition, the tossing of the material in the 2016 transition, current problems. So I think there were things that needed to be reformed in this effort. And I'm really curious to see what the Biden transition works out like. We're in the midst of it, obviously. But I think we'll know more after the transition and the, the kind of thing it seems fruitful to write some articles about whether this is the new model for transitions after this is over. And it seems like the kind of thing I, I might take my pen to in the months ahead. Well, and even if the, the GSA issue in the aftermath of the 2020 election, even if that was overblown a little bit, it, it seems to me inevitable that if Congress goes back to the drawing board, it'll focus on that in no small part, right? They will try to make the decision, the discretion that's left to the GSA administrator much, much more narrow try to come up with much more specific standards so that you don't get this sort of anonymous functionary in, in GSA suddenly thrust into the spotlight again, wittingly. Or yeah, there's actually some interesting stuff going on after the election and, and all the back and forth. But it was pretty clear to me that Biden had won. It was pretty clear to you that Biden had won the election. But the truth is, the only way in which he had won was that the media had declared him the winner. And he had not officially been declared the winner, which I think led to some of the confusion. And could you imagine a situation more like Florida in 2000, where it is actually one state and there's only 500 votes between them, 537 to be precise. And the GSA could really have been flummoxed and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to hand over the keys because it is just not clear. And this thing's not resolved yet and maybe not going to be resolved until the Supreme Court weighs in or, or, or whatever. So I think taking away discretion from the GSA makes some sense, but there are still going to be situations where it's ambiguous. It really is fascinating that this whole structure that we have today presumes that the matter will be settled and obvious to everybody, or at least to enough people, well before the, the actual official dates, the date on which the Electoral College in the states comes together to meet, the date later in December when the votes have to be transmitted to Congress, and then the date after that when the Congress actually counts the votes, right? It's, it's presumed that all of those things will be more or less ceremonial, and that all the real substance of our election will be taken care of beforehand and, and done in a way that these non-governmental institutions like the media 
are able to declare the winner and people will rally behind it. President Trump at one point tweeted something like, since when did the media get to declare who won the election? And the answer is, well, for a very long time, actually. But it's not an unfair question, right? Who right. gave the... I mean, he's wrong and he's right in a way. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we do learn from the media who won the election. But let's say, and we've certainly seen some media dislike of President Trump in the last four years, let's say the media said, we don't want the election to be determined or declared in this way that it appears to be going. I could have seen see that happening if, let's say, Trump had been on the ballot in 2000 and you had that 537 votes in Florida. One of the reasons that Bush won that whole battle is because Bush was early on perceived as the winner. And Gore was seen as having to have this uphill battle to change the outcome of the election. It's kind of like in, in baseball or in sports when the, the referees or the umpires have to look at a call through the instant replay. And the presumption is that the original call holds unless there's overwhelming evidence to change it. And if the media are making the initial call, they have a huge amount of power in terms of setting the perception for who won. And if they set it in a certain way, then even a candidate who may have won and have a reason for being aggrieved will have a hard time overturning them. Now, let's back up a little bit. You talked before about the fact that JFK self-funded his transition. We've been talking a lot about federal funds and current transitions, but are modern transitions funded exclusively through federal funds? They are not. And in fact, when you hear something like Carter starting in April like of the year before Bush, I mean, that, that stuff is, is paid for by the campaign operations. They, raise, they can raise money separately for it. And even today, the entire cost of the transition doesn't come from the federal government, although much of it does now. And another advantage of this, by the way, is that it's all now subject to the Presidential Records Act. So the transition materials are now archived and part of libraries going forward so that the stuff doesn't get lost. So having federal funds kind of creates a federal obligation as well, if you will. I suppose to the extent the campaign is funding the transition, all the money that's coming into the campaign is subject to the usual limits of campaign finance law. But to the extent that there's you know an unofficial transition beforehand, right, or, or just people working on their own to prepare for these things. I mean, a lot of resources are surely invested in, if only in people's time, the sheer amount of time that former government insiders spend focused on planning for a new administration. I mean, precisely because the transitions are much more amorphous, the financing of transitions is, is somewhat amorphous too. I actually, that one oh, slightly correct what you're saying. It's not campaign funds. You can't use campaign funds. or I don't know if you can't, but you don't use campaign funds. for it. They raise money separately in the own with separate limits and restrictions for the transition. Interesting. Maybe one other thing before we move to the end. A little while ago, you talked about different kinds of transitions from one party to the other and so on. But I guess there's maybe two axes along which we can think about this. One is inter-party transitions, Democrat to Republican and vice versa. The other is transitions to a new president who doesn't really have experience in federal government, Bush, Bush Jr., I mean, Carter and Clinton, versus those who know it well. Nixon, George H.W. Bush, and now Joe Biden. You point out in your myths, your five myths. Not clear that those people are better presidents than the people who had less experience. Well, let's talk about that then. What do you mean by that? Well, Nixon's presidency obviously ended in impeachment. George H.W. Bush's presidency ended with an election loss. It's too soon to say about Biden. But George W. Bush successfully ran for re-election. Clinton successfully ran re-election, Obama's re-election, and re-election. So in some ways, the presidents with less federal experience beforehand may have had a better track record. Were they more prepared on day one? 
I would say no. I would say they were not more prepared than they were. But maybe that allowed them to be more nimble, shift things to change their approach. Now, obviously, Carter didn't have the federal experience, and I would say it was a failed presidency, not just because he lost, but because there, there were a lot of problems in that administration. But I think the ability to be willing to change things, and, and I think we see this with Reagan. You know, people say the conservative ideologue today, but he was actually quite nimble. He was willing to make bipartisan compromises to get what he wanted. He was willing to change direction on a, on a whole bunch of things, including seeing that the Lebanon excursion was a disaster and, and pulling out when other presidents, I, I could see an LBJ wanting to double down in that situation. So you know, maybe there is something to be said for presidents coming without preconceived notions and be willing to learn on the job. One of your myths is that transitions show how an administration will operate. I guess my question is, how important then is a good transition, right? If presidents who are least familiar with the federal government can often be much more successful presidents over the course of four years, how important really is it then that the, the transition itself prepare at least the president for the presidency? Is it overrated? It's a great question. I think that the transition is important in that it helps you get the administration off on the right foot. But even starting on the right foot doesn't mean that everything is going to work out great or starting on the wrong foot doesn't mean that it's going to be a disaster. Clinton, I think, had such a bad transition in early days that the New York Times was calling his presidency a failure within a week, to which uh, Senator D.D. Myers correctly said, you know, it's only been a week. What are you talking about? Clinton, in some ways, righted, righted the ship and successfully won re-election and is seen now pretty positively by the American people. And I suppose you wrote this years ago, it was in 2016 in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you wrote about transitions and you said that one very good thing that they do is prepare presidents to deal with the unexpected, right? At least prepare them for just a baseline level of competency for emergencies. The incoming president is educated on what the, the major threats are. So at least they have this baseline of knowledge. Whether over four years they become a great president or not, obviously, depends on much, much more than just the transition. But at least the transition can prepare them for the worst. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, you know, I wrote that book about presidents and, and disasters. And it's amazing some of the things that presidents have had to deal with in their first years. I mean, George W. Bush was dealing with 9-11, his first year in office. Obama was dealing with the swine flu within three months and before even any of his HHS people were confirmed. And in fact, Obama had so many crazy things happening in that first term. Remember the BP oil spill, the Somali pirates. <laughs> and he actually said at one point, who thought we we're going to have to deal with pirates? just kind of incredulously. So it's amazing how many things have really landed in a president's lap early on. And the other point, the other sort of axis along which to think about these things, and we've already touched on it a bit, is the party difference. And, and one of your myths of transitions is that same party transitions are smoother. You said it's not always the case. You, you cited the example of Reagan to Bush Sr., but why don't you expand on that a little bit? Why can intra-party transitions be as difficult as inter-party ones? Well, let's just talk about my current book, Fight House, which is a book about intra-rivalries, people who are on the same team, people who work within the same White House who fight each other and hate each other. So it's not necessarily so that the, the worst enmities in politics are with people of opposing parties. Sometimes they're people within the same party. And one of those ugly transitions I talk about is the transition from Nixon to Ford. Obviously, it wasn't an election-created transition, but it was a transition nonetheless. The Ford people were often leaking, which the Nixon people didn't like. And then the Nixon people at one point didn't want to give the Ford people badges to get into the West Wing. And so that, that was a particularly nasty and unpleasant transition. So just because it goes from one within the same party doesn't necessarily mean it's a good transition. Well, we're recording this in early December. 
as we wrap this episode, do you have any advice for the Biden transition as it continues through December into January? A transition like administration is about discipline. Keep your head down. Don't leak. Don't backbite. Don't fight with your, your friends. You know, James Carville famously said, a campaign is about screwing your enemy and a transition is about screwing your friends. You try and remember which side you're on and stick to it and stay within your lanes and you should do fine. Well, Tevi, thanks for joining us once again on Unpresidential. It's an honor to be the repeat guest on Unpresidential and keep up the good work. Thanks, Tevi. And I'm sure we'll have you back again before long. But thanks, as always, to our audience for joining us. We're going to have a few episodes coming up in the, in the weeks ahead on transitions, on inaugurations and more. So please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential. <laughs>